And as we get into our study, of course, Paul the Apostle, as he's writing to this, uh, to the Christians in Rome 2,000 years ago, which is before is called the Book of Romans, we have seen that Paul's theme is the gospel of Christ, that he writes that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God's salvation for all who believe. And then he begins to present to us our need for the gospel in chapters 1, 2, and 3, because all of us have sinned, all of us stand guilty before God. There is no exception, and the wages of sin is death. And then, as we saw the doctrine of justification being declared to us, that is the gospel, that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That began in chapter 3 and continued through chapter 5. And when we read that we've been redeemed, we've been saved, we've been justified freely, that means we cannot earn it, we cannot work for it, we cannot merit it. It is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. So Paul makes sure that we are established in that. There is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to earn salvation. It is by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's not of works. Lest anyone should boast, it is the gift of God. We see that in chapter 5, that Paul reiterates that it is the gift of God given to us as we come in faith. Chapter 6 ends by saying that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so we are established in the doctrine of justification, but what does it mean for you and for me once that we are saved? He began to talk about in chapter 6, and we'll continue through chapter 8 here, discussing sanctification. And what that means is that once you and I are born again by the Spirit of God, that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we are born again, we are saved, declared righteous, then we are set apart to live a life for the Lord. We do not uh, pursue sin any longer. Uh, we're not saved so we can continue in darkness or continue living after the world. And Paul would begin to talk about that doctrine of sanctification being set aside in chapter 6 as he would write, should we continue in sin that grace abounds? He said, no, certainly not because we are dead to sin. We identify with Christ in this newness of life. We're to reckon it to be so. We're to yield our bodies over as an instrument of righteousness and we're not to be enslaved to sin because what that will do is bring death and it will bring rotten fruit that is produced in our lives. But we are to be a slave, we're to be a servant unto God for righteousness. So that was chapter 6. And in chapter 7, we also learn not only are we dead to sin, but we are dead to the law so that we can be joined to another, that is Jesus Christ. And Paul in chapter 7 began to share with us the struggle of trying to keep the law in his own efforts and energy. He described to us the warring that takes place between the inner man that wants to do what is right and then the flesh that wants to rebel against that. And as we move through chapter 7, this struggle, Paul brought it to a climax by saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That is uh, Jesus Christ. And he begins to give us the answer in chapter 8 here as Paul began to explain to us that there is a way out of the conflict and confusion of chapter 7. And he is now bringing to us a, to a place of peace and confidence in chapter 8. And in verse 1, you might recall that we read that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You and I who are believers, listen, here is the good news that there is therefore now, that means this morning, today, 
no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And that word condemnation means to judge down. It's only used in two other places in the New Testament, and that was in chapter 5 of the book of Romans that we went through. And it means eternal uh, condemnation. We are not going to stand at the great white throne judgment of God, but you and I will stand at the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ as believers to be rewarded for what we have done for Christ, not to be judged for our sins, not to be judged for salvation. Jesus provided salvation for you and for me. He took our sins upon himself. He took the judgment for you and for me. But we are going to stand at the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 14, we will see that more clearly, be rewarded for what we have done for Christ. So we have good news. Listen, today, there is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. And I want to reiterate that once again at this time in our study because there are Christians sometimes that they live their lives just in being condemned or condemning themselves or thinking that, you know, the Lord's going to judge me. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But as we continue, there is a realization that we are to walk according to the Spirit. And not only are we saved by the work of the Spirit, but we're to walk and live in the power of the Spirit if we are to grow in the Lord. And we have seen that the weakness of the law is this, that the law, even though it's God's standard, <clears throat> it's, it got, the law is good, but it cannot give you and I the power to live a life after Him. What the law does is it cannot defeat sin. It detects sin. It tells us that we're sinners, that the weakness is us, but it cannot defeat sin and it cannot give you the power to, to live for the Lord. And that's why Paul says we're to be dead to the law as well. And we live in a higher law that is the law of the Spirit that enables me and empowers me to walk in Christ's likeness and has me, made me free from the law of sin and death. So Paul, in this very wonderful chapter of Romans, contrasting walking in the Spirit, which is a life of peace, and with walking with the flesh, that is a life of conflict and confusion, weakness and death. He stated to be carnally minded is death, and to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And we kind of emphasized that last week. If you didn't listen to the teaching, I think it would be very encouraging to you. But Paul continues to tell us that as believers, that we are to walk in the Spirit. Let's pick up our text in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So if you are a Christian, you come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And a person cannot be saved by Christ apart from the Spirit of Christ. Now people, sometimes we will talk to them, and they'll say, well, you know, I'm a Christian. Uh, I've gone to church. Uh, I was baptized in the church. Uh, I'm a good person. I I've read some of the Bible. But I'm not one of those born-again Christians. And when you hear that, you can very patiently and lovingly show them and explain to them this verse, that if you are truly a Christian, you are born again. You can explain to them how Ephesians chapter 2 declares to you and to me that before we came to Christ, we were dead spiritually, but he has made us alive by his great love. As we come in faith, as we've surrendered our lives to him, Jesus saying to Nicodemus there in John chapter 3 that Nicodemus, who was a very religious man, 
man, he was the master teacher of Israel at that time, that if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. So as we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, we are born again by the Spirit of God. The uh, Spirit of God dwells in us. And, and just a little side note, by the way, when you do share with somebody truth, um, that keep in mind 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, that a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach patiently in humility. And we can patiently show people that, and we're to speak the truth in love. But when we read this word dwell in, in verse 9, I want to draw attention to that word. It means that uh, to dwell in your heart, to be at home in your heart. Um, Christ is in your heart, uh, makes his home in your heart. And the question to ask ourselves this morning, is he comfortable there? And you might be thinking, what do you mean, Pastor Jeff? Our own homes. Think about your home. You want your home to be comfortable, right? We, I have a chair at my home. The kids know that's my chair. Now, if they sit in it, I don't boot them up, but I'll give them a weird look. And um, <laughs> they know that's my chair. We want to be comfortable. And Sue has her chair where she does her crochet, and, and we'll sit and talk. But all of us, we want our homes to be comfortable, right? Uh, we come home. We kick up our feet. We have the easy chair, uh, the couch, whatever the case may be. It may be a special place that you have where you have quiet. And in our hearts, the Lord is there dwelling in our hearts and the question to ask, can he kick back in the easy chair of your heart? Can he be comfortable there? Or are there things on the walls of your heart that will make him uncomfortable because you've been saying things or looking at or involved in things that would really grieve him? And I think that's something worth considering, you know, as we consider I'm going to watch this or I'm going to engage in this conversation or I'm going to go there and participate in that. Is Christ going to be comfortable with that? Are there things in your heart that make him uncomfortable, grieve him, that are on the walls of your heart? And we need to turn from that and we need to give our hearts completely to him, realizing he dwells in our hearts. And as we continue in verse 10, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So how do I deal with carnality? Paul gives us the key here. He says the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is in us. He will work in us so not only are we saved by the work of the Spirit, being born again by the Spirit of God, that's verse 9, but we walk in the Spirit and if we are to pursue and grow in the Lord, that's verse 11. And the Holy Spirit that dwells in us will empower us to live that life. And it's not trying to find perfection through our own energies, our own efforts, and our own flesh. You might recall the story, uh, illustration that I want to share with you on this truth that in 1 Samuel chapter 4, that the children of Israel is towards the end of the days of the judges. Their hearts weren't right with the Lord. And they go to battle against the Philistines, and they're defeated soundly. So they come back, they regroup, and they say, how is it that we can defeat the Philistines? 
well, why don't we do this? Why don't we bring out the Ark of the Covenant? Of course, the Ark of the Covenant was the most precious thing that they had in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was there in Shiloh, and it, it represented the presence of God. Once a year, the high priest would go behind the veil, and the Lord said, I'll dwell between the cherubim, the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. And, and it represented the presence of God. But they said, we're going to bring out the Ark. Let's bring out the Ark, and it will defeat the Philistines. And you can tell as you read that carefully where their hearts really were with the Lord. They had reduced God to an it, to a box. We will go get it, and it will defeat the Philistines. And you see, sometimes people do that. They kind of reduce God to an it. Well, I will do it, this religious thing, or have this religious relic, or whatever. And so what they do is they, they bring the Ark of the Covenant out. They give a big shout. The Philistines on the other side of the valley, that they will, you know, they heard that, that shouting of, of excitement from the children of Israel. And they said, oh, no. They brought God into the camp. God who defeated the, the Egyptians and brought the plagues upon them. And they begin to snivel and they begin to cry. And finally, one of them stood up and said, you know, quit your sniveling and wipe your noses and quit you like men. In other words, be brave and fight. We see that only one other time in the scriptures, and that's in the New Testament. When Paul gives his final exhortation to the Corinthian church, he says, watch, stand fast in the face, in the faith, and then be brave. Or if you have a King James, quit you like men. Men. Be brave. Fight the good fight of the spirit, as Nehemiah tells the men there in Nehemiah chapter 4. So what they do is they gather their armor. They go to battle against the children of Israel. They defeat the children of Israel soundly. They capture the Ark of the Covenant. What they do at that time is they take the Ark of the Covenant as you continue through 1 Samuel. And they take it to one of their major cities to a temple that was dedicated to one of their false gods, uh, Dagon. Dagon was the fish god. And as they took it into the temple of Dagon, they put the Ark of the Covenant right next to Dagon, this this huge idol statue that they had there that they would go and burn incense to and worship. And as they left, they came back the next day. The Philistines noticed that Dagon was toppled over. So they thought, hmm. So they put him back up. They leave, they come back the next day, he's toppled back over again, his head's broken, his, his arms are broken off, and, and they think, something's fishy here, something's going on here. <laughs> so they said, as pretty soon the people were beginning to get struck with tumors, they said, the ark's got to go. Now here's the interesting thing, you would have thought that they would have said, maybe the God of Israel is the true God. Because we know 400 years before this that he did strike the Egyptians. And of course, it was the Lord that said that the nations may know that I am the Lord. That he's the one that drowned the Egyptian you know, chariots and soldiers. And, and he's the one here that's knocking over our idol and stuff and, and hitting us with plagues. You would think they would repent, but they said the ark's got to go. So they put the ark on a, on a cart, sent it back to Israel. And you might be thinking, well, what does that really have to do with what Paul's declaring? here in Romans chapter 8. Listen, the way to get rid of that stinky, fishy, smelly, carnal tendency to put to death the deeds of the body. Listen, what areas are you struggling with? What seems to, to rise up and try to dictate you and control you and enslave you? You've read the books. You've gone to the seminars, to the conferences. You've listened to the teachings, but you're frustrated. 
It's daggone frustrating. So what do you do? Listen. You bring in the ark. You bring in the ark. You bring in the Lord is what I'm saying. And you walk and you submit to the spirit and you just love the Lord. And you enjoy him and you fellowship with him. And before you start your day, you get up and you start your day with the Lord. And, and I've always encouraged you, and I'm going to continue to, that every day, start your day with the Lord. Read your Bible every single day. And you go to him and you ask for help. Lord, help me. Guide me and direct me. Empower me to live a life today pleasing to you. I want to be sensitive to your leading. Lord, I need you. When I go to work and all of a sudden the crude jokes begin to fly or the gossip begins to start in, in, at work, I don't want to be engaged in that. I don't want to be involved in anything that's going to grieve you and hurt you and cause me to carnal out. You just go to the Lord. You bring him into your heart and life. Before you turn on the TV, before you pull up the computer, before you get on social media, all that stuff that you go to him and allow him to minister to you. The spirit of God is in you. Just let God fill your mind and your heart. And what will happen, listen, is that the Dagons will begin to fall over. And you begin to lose interest in the things that dominate you. Not because you're working on the Dagon, but you're bringing in the Lord. You're bringing in the ark. And that's why this book is so thrilling here. There, listen, there's no condemnation but here's an important realization and consideration. If you're carnally minded, death happens. If you're spiritually minded, life and peace. The spirit is in you, Christian. And you are to live in the spirit and walk in the spirit. And we continue in verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we are being told that you live according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. That's what's being emphasized here. The flesh is in rebellion against God. Paul wrote in chapter 7 that in our flesh dwells nothing good, no good thing. So why would you want to live after the flesh? Why would you want to rely on the flesh and depend on the flesh? It will let you down and it will defeat you. So there's a realization that we're saved by the Spirit of God, born again in our flesh. We cannot save ourselves no matter how hard we try. And now that we are saved, brethren, he says, we live according to the Spirit. Our debt is to the Spirit, not to the flesh. And we put to death the deeds of the body. And it happens by submitting and relying to the Spirit, renewing our minds of the Word of God and the things of God. And no Christian can become Christ-like and live the way that God has called us to live in the energies of the flesh. It won't happen. I'm going to grip my teeth. I'm going to roll up my sleeves. I am determined, and I'm going to marry myself to the law, and I'm going to do this on my own, and you're going to fail. You're going to end up in the mess that we saw in chapter 7. It is only by the Spirit who enables us. And that's why Paul was so concerned when he was writing to the Galatian believers, his very first epistle that we have recorded in the New Testament. And as Paul went throughout the Galatian area and to the Galatian churches that were established 
on his first missionary journey. He would leave, go back to Antioch. The Judaizers would come in behind him, and they would say to those new believers who are enjoying the Lord, those Gentile believers, listen, that's all fine and dandy what Paul says, that you're saved by faith, but there's more to it. If you really want to be saved, if you really want to consider yourself to be a Christian and, and that you have salvation, you have to be circumcised. You have to be cut, and you have to keep the law of Moses. So Paul writes to them, and he says, I marvel that you turn away from the gospel to another, which is not the gospel. And he begins to explain to them, listen, it is by faith alone in Christ that no man is justified by the deeds of the law. And what has begun in the spirit, why are you trying to perfect it in the flesh? The works of the flesh are dead. But your life is to reflect the new nature that you have in Christ, the life in the spirit. And I want to read to you, draw attention here to verse 13 again as we read it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so Paul writes, if you live according to the flesh, there's death. According to the Spirit, you live. There's a formula here, isn't there? And it reminds me so much of what Jesus said. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And there is a killing, a dying that brings life. And that is when we die to self and to our flesh. And that's why Jesus would say that you and I as disciples, that we are to die to self, take up our cross, and follow after him. You see, a popular message in the church today is that you are to focus on yourself and you need to, to live for yourself and the temporary and all of this, and it's unfortunate. We are to live after the Spirit and know that as we live after the Spirit, that's where life and peace is going to come, a life in the Spirit, living for the Lord. In verse 14, for as many are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Those who are the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. And a person cannot be linked to God apart from the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of God that is giving to you, you know, guidance and the Spirit of God that will lead you. And it's interesting, that word lead there, as you look at it, it's an interesting word because sometimes it means to educate, which it does have that meaning here, to instruct. Certainly, as we read the Word of God, as we're growing in the Word of God, it educates us and instructs us. And, and the Word of God does lead us. So important for us to understand that, to lead us in truth. And the word also has the idea of not only being led, but being safe. There is safety in being led by the Lord, right? We're not going to be deceived. We're not going to be walking in darkness. We're not going to be fooled. We're not going to be bound up in sin. Matter of fact, Proverbs chapter 1, at the end of the book of Proverbs chapter 1, it speaks those verses of their safety and security in knowing God's wisdom. And knowing God's wisdom is not just having a head knowledge of it, but having it be worked out in your life. So being led by the Spirit of God, and listen, I've shared this verse with you before, but I want to share it with you again. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 34, Moses was told by the Lord that now therefore go and lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. You cannot be led 
You won't know where to go if the Lord isn't speaking to you. Listen, Christian. You won't know where to go. If you're not in the word, if you're not allowing the Lord to speak to your heart, you're not going to be led. And parents, how are you going to lead others, your children, your grandchildren, if the Lord isn't speaking to you? Dads, how are you going to lead your family if the Lord isn't speaking to you? Moses, go to the place that I'm going to show you that I've spoken to you. And he was the shepherd of two and a half million people. And it was important for him to be led by the Lord to go to the promised land where they were supposed to go. But listen, you will not lead your family, moms and dads. You will not lead others that you're discipling and ministering to if the Lord isn't speaking to you. You're not going to be able to lead them. And there's going to be confusion and there's going to be, you know, all these things that the enemy comes along and it gives him an opportunity to deceive and to bring conflict and the culture comes along and tells you otherwise. You need to, it's important for all of us to be hearing from the Lord, to be in his word, to be able to lead others as well. So here, as we learn of him, his word, and you walk in the spirit and yield to the spirit, delighting in the Lord, you will find your heart wanting to yield to his will. We know that the prophet Jeremiah, as he wrote about this new covenant relationship that we have with the Lord, he says, I'm going to be writing upon the tablets of your heart, not just the letter of the law and the tablets of stone, but God's spirit is in your heart. And so Paul, as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And living as a child of God means an intimate, joyful relationship with God. It does not mean that we live in bondage or we live in fear. Verse 15 is a verse I like to show those who live in a spirit of fear, in a terror of the Lord. Living in a relationship with God is to be enjoyed. It is to be peaceful because you belong to him. He has a love for you. And we are able to cry out, Abba, Father. And that is this wonderful realization for you and for me. Now, sometimes we can say to ourselves, yeah, yeah, I, I can see Jesus relating to the Father with this joyful confidence. And, of course, Jesus, when he came on the scene there in the Gospels, he would call Yahweh his Father, uh, my Father. And that made the religious leaders so upset. What do you mean he, you're calling God your Father? They were ones that... They, they considered the name of God so holy to be revered so much that you wouldn't even dare speak the name of God. And here comes Jesus, and he relates to him as his father. But Paul has declared that we are in Christ, and now we have the privilege of relating to the Father, even as Jesus did. We cry out, Abba. It literally means, as I said, Papa. It means Daddy. One of the great experiences that any of us have when we're a dad is when we come home, particularly when our kids are young and our kids come running to us, right? Daddy, daddy. And my kids are grown up now. They still like to see me and, and we enjoy each other. But I remember those days were so special that I'd come home, even if I had a rotten day, that my kids would run to me, dad, daddy's home. You know, they didn't run for it and hide in fear and Unless they were in trouble. And Sue said, wait till your dad gets home. 
but it wasn't that way every day, you know? It, it wasn't that way day after day. It wasn't a prison where they felt like it's such bondage and imprisonment and fear. But as Christians, there is to be peace in our homes. There is to be love that is ruling in our homes. For some of you, perhaps you grew up in a home where there was fear and there was abuse, and I am so sorry. But I want you to know that there's a loving Father who loves you and wants you to come to Him and have a loving relationship with Him. And you can go to Him and ask for direction. You can go to Him and receive comfort and truth. He desires to work in your life. And there doesn't have to be this fear as you come in faith. And understand that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We have peace with God, Romans 5, verse 1. We have access to God, that's verse 2, the fifth chapter. And we call him Father, God, Daddy, speaking of relationship and closeness. And that's the evidence that we belong to God. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together we relate to the father as jesus did we call him father remember the disciples came to jesus and said teach us to pray which i find is interesting they didn't come to him that we know of and said teach us to to be able to give a powerful sermon or teach us to work miracles they said teach us to pray and jesus said when you pray pray in this manner our father that must have been astonishing to the you know, disciples. And we are the only ones in the world that can call God our Father. Abba, Father, Papa. People say, well, I know God. We're all children of God. This here is not some universal fatherhood of, of God. You know, in this politically correct, all-inclusive culture that we live in. We're not all children of God. The children of God are those who have come to Jesus Christ in faith. And Jesus, in that upper room, right before he went to the cross, he said that I am the way, definite article, I am the way, the truth, not a way, not a truth. I am the way. I am the truth, singularly. I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That was an amazing statement that Jesus made. And he proved that he is the way to the Father as he went to the cross, died for our sins, he rose again, and the tomb is empty. So the evidence that we belong to the Father is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. That he speaks to your heart. You have peace of God because you have peace with God. And we rejoice and celebrate our relationship with him. And we know that we are heirs to God. We are joint heirs with Christ. Now everything that is Christ is ours. Think about that for a minute. Because we have the spirit of adoption. Paul would write something very similar in Ephesians chapter 1. The book of Ephesians, you know that the book of Ephesians talks of our blessings, spiritual blessings that we have, takes us to the heavenlies. And in chapter 1, as he's talking about the spiritual blessings that we have, he says in verse 11 that in him, this is Ephesians chapter 1, also we have obtained an inheritance. Now, if you are an heir or are receiving an inheritance, it's nice if someone who's given you that inheritance has money, you know, is, is wealthy or whatever. Um, you get my point in that. All the riches of Christ is ours. 
All the riches of crisis are. So wonder that Abraham would be comforted when the Lord told him in Genesis chapter 15. The Lord said, Abraham, I'm your exceedingly rich reward. And I'm reminded of that because we can get all caught up in what I don't get in this life and what I miss out on. And we are to keep an eternal perspective that the things that we have now are nothing in comparison that awaits us the inheritance that will last for all eternity. But also in Ephesians chapter 1, while I'm talking about that chapter, Paul begins his first prayer in that chapter. And he says, for the Christians there, oh, this is my prayer, that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of your calling, that is heaven, and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And I read that, I remember, and then I went back and read it again and read it again when I was a young Christian. You mean that the riches of the glory of his inheritance is me? Of the saints? And I thought, wow, I'm his inheritance? That's how valuable you are to the Lord. That's how valuable you are to him. You are his inheritance. And it was like as Jesus said in the kingdom parables that the kingdom of God is like a man who found a treasure in the field and he gave all that he had to buy the field to take the treasure out. And it speaks of Jesus who gave all that he had as he went to the cross and died for you and for me and redeemed the world. Not so he can get another planet. He redeemed the world so he can have you. The treasure. You are a treasure to him. And don't ever forget that. You are valuable to him. You are his inheritance in the Lord. But then Paul reminds us of something that if we suffer with him, since we suffer with him, it could be translated, that we also may be glorified together. We will be glorified in heaven, live in heaven. I can't wait. As Christians, I think that we should look forward to heaven. I look forward to heaven. I look forward to us all being together. And the reality is, as we are in this world, there will be tribulations, there will be sufferings for Christ. We're aliens in this world in which we live. We are to live in the Spirit. The world is dominated by those who live in and after the flesh. So the world is going to hate us. Jesus said the world's going to hate us. And we're going to go through tribulations and we're going to go through sufferings. And Paul's going to talk about that next time as we pick it up that there's going to be the groaning of creation, the groaning of our bodies, and there's groanings in times of suffering and tribulations and how the Holy Spirit comes to bring us comfort. But I want to end with this very quickly. Remember that we talked about in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation that John, he's an elderly man. He, he's there in Ephesus. He is persecuted, and they banished him to the island of Patmos. He's on that rocky, barren island, and all of a sudden, as John writes, that I, your brother and companion in tribulation, am on the island of Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden we see that he hears the voice of the Lord like a trumpet. After 60 years of Jesus' ascension into heaven, the last words perhaps John heard audibly from the Lord, all of a sudden on that island, on that island alone, he had watched his friends, his fellow apostles be persecuted and put to death. He's on that island. And once you went on that island, you did not come back. And as he's there, he hears the voice of the Lord. 
And in those times, listen, of persecution, and in those times of tribulations, the Lord desires to speak to you and to reveal himself more fully to you. Do you know that? He wants to remind you that he is on the throne, that he is coming back, and we belong to a kingdom that will be established forever, and we have a wonderful future, and his promises are true for you, and his comfort is for you. And in those times of isolation, where you feel alone, perhaps, maybe there's a lot of people around you, where you don't understand why I'm in this place or on this rocky, barren island that I find myself on, that he wants to reveal himself more clearly to you than ever before. Will you allow him to do that? Make room in your heart for that. And he will reveal himself to you to a greater degree and bring in truth and comfort and encouragement and just his love to you. You wait and you will see the Lord will be faithful to you. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for these words here. And uh, we thank you that we have the spirit of adoption, that we can cry out, Abba, Father. We have relationship with you. We're forgiven. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But realization that we are to live for you and walk after you in the spirit. And Lord, I do want to pray if there's anyone here, because I know the sanctuary is full and the coffee shop's full and those listening on live stream later on the radio, that you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, that he is your hope, your salvation. He provided forgiveness. No one else, nothing else. Today is the day of salvation. He loves you, and he's calling you to himself. For you to come and recognize you need to be forgiven of your sins. To recognize that he is Lord because he rose from the grave and he's at the right hand of the Father. He proved that he's the Son of God by conquering sin and death. No one else did that. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. But the invitation is given to you right now to come and surrender your life to him. To repent, to turn direction. Come in faith. You can do that right where you are. Today is the day of salvation. He loves you. And you can pray sincerely in your heart that Jesus, I come and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me. You rose again and you're alive. And I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for your love for me, providing salvation, forgiveness. And I want to live in this newness of life, to know you and to enjoy you, to walk with you. So I thank you for this new beginning. I thank you for this newness of life. And Lord, help me every day of my life now to know you more in Jesus' name. And listen, if you prayed that prayer, when we finish here in just a minute, will you come forward when the prayer team's up here and tell them the decision you made? But for all of us, as we leave this place, may we walk after you, go to you. Bring in the Lord in our hearts every day, being guided and directed by you, Lord, and enjoying you in every way. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.